So if we want to be inclusive, if we want to be equitable, we need to ask ourselves, am I designing a course that is throwing up barriers to learning? I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. This is episode 304, which features a conversation with Diane Elkins. Diane is co-founder of Artisan eLearning, which does custom eLearning development, and eLearning Uncovered, which teaches people how to develop eLearning for themselves. Diane is also a return guest to the Leading Learning Podcast, and we were fortunate to snag her for another conversation. She's insightful and savvy about learning design and someone who leads by example. Diane and Jeff talk about how COVID elevated the status of online learning and accelerated its acceptance and the likely long-term implications of that pandemic-driven shift to online. They also discuss meaningful interactivity, accessibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why Diane favors the terms access and ability. They talk, too, about augmented virtual and mixed reality and how it's important for tech tools to add value, not just a cool factor. Jeff and Diane spoke in March 2022. We're in the midst now of, or or possibly emerging, I guess, from a time when e-learning has enjoyed a a surge unlike anything that we've seen before. But obviously, that's been driven largely by necessity. It's been driven by this background of COVID, which has just, you know, changed so many things for all of us. So I'd love to get your view. Has what has happened with online learning, so many people now having to, you know, participate in online learning, so many organizations having to create it. Do you think that's represented a, a net gain or a net loss for e-learning? And I'm, I'm thinking mainly in terms of, you know, how people perceive it, how receptive they are to it. And then, of course, the, the actual quality of the, the e-learning experiences that are out there at this point. Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. And overall, I think it has been a net gain. But it's been a, you know, there's ups and downs in all areas. Um, I think that the requirement to go online has broken through so many barriers that have existed for years. Whether it's an organization saying, we can't afford this platform, we can't afford a learning management system, we can't afford a good web conferencing tool, whatever it is. Well, they got it done. They removed a lot of bureaucratic and financial barriers. Or I've been talking to a lot of folks. I was talking to a couple of people and some of our association clients who said, yeah, this stuff was on our roadmap and this accelerated it. So change that might have taken three years, they did in three months. And so I think we've been a lot of organizations have been able to move forward very, very rapidly. It's also broken down a lot of barriers in terms of you can't teach X online, whatever X is, it, we, you have to do it in the classroom. You couldn't possibly have this experience online. And sure, I'm the first to agree that not everything is, is perfect for e-learning, but I think a lot of people had preconceived notions and prejudices around e-learning that also got broken down. I had one client who, there was one course I worked with them on and I flew around the country to help them. And, oh, no, we have to do this in person. We have to do it. Well, guess what? They're doing it online and they're reaching more people. So when I've been talking to a lot of clients recently, 
reach is a huge, huge aspect is the move online has removed so many barriers, especially for associations and other training service providers. Geographic reach, especially with associations, very often their in-person programs are in key cities around the U.S. And if you don't live in one of those key cities, you're traveling, which means more money, more hassle. You may not have that money. You may not have that time. Or you have to be in an area where there's a chapter. So it's opened it up geographically. It's opened it up internationally. It's reduced socioeconomic barriers. Maybe, sure, my boss says I can go drive uh, three hours to that city and stay overnight for that two-day course, but I don't have reliable child care or I don't have a reliable car. So moving things online has removed so many barriers or I was talking to one person who said their attendance at online conferences has been through the roof because before an organization would only have the money to send their director. But now they can send the director and three people below them. So just the reach and the equity of being able to get more or get training in the hands of more people without the huge financial and lifestyle barriers of traveling to training, it's been massive. And and do you think people are coming around to the idea that e-learning really can be effective? I mean, possibly as good as or better than than what happens in the classroom? Because I feel like there's just traditionally been a a very visceral reaction against that. People just think that face-to-face, meaning, you know, in-person, in the room, is just always going to be superior, even though we know the research, you know, doesn't necessarily support that. Uh, you, You think people are coming around? I think people are more open to having a conversation. Uh, There will still be some topics that are better in the classroom. There will still be be people who just prefer the classroom. I mean, one thing that is a challenge is just sitting at your computer, looking at your screen all day. You know, going to training shakes things up a little bit. And just the same format, just constantly looking at the screen all day is challenging. So, I I mean, and yeah, you've got better networking opportunities. I go to a lot of conferences. A lot of them are back in person. And I would rather go in person for the networking opportunities. So I get just as good content from an online conference, but I don't get the same experience from an online conference. So I think there's there's room for both. But people are absolutely open to it. I am not hearing a lot of, wow, our training is so much less effective. I'm just I'm not hearing that. Good design is good design. Bad design is bad design. So a poorly designed e-learning course is not going to be better poorly designed classroom course isn't going to be better. But that is one trend that I think we need to be careful about is so much was done so quickly that second quarter of 2020, so many things got turned out quickly and instructional designers and instructional technologists were essential personnel for the first time in the history of the world, as far as I know. They had to work so quickly that you know the, the, the training probably wasn't ideal. And I think now is a great time to look back over the last two years and say, what have we done? What's working? What's not? And now we can move forward more strategically. We move from survival mode to thriving mode and really think about the best fit. And I think people will be way more open to that conversation now. Well, I I certainly hope it does lead to that, that uh, organizations are able to be more strategic You mentioned instructional design there, and and I know from our past research that the use of instructional designers, at least by the the types of organizations that are in our audience, those sort of market-facing 
learning businesses, it really wasn't considered essential. In fact, most of them were not using any form of professional instructional design, whether that meant hiring somebody or having somebody on staff who actually had those credentials. As a result, they probably weren't creating the most effective uh, e-learning experiences in the world. But I'm, I'm betting, and we haven't done any research on this, that as organizations had to step up, had to create new content to get it online, I, I suspect that most of them went ahead and just sort of did what they could without the instructional design help, probably, you know, ran into quite a few struggles. They may be dealing with some backlash from, from, from that now. I'm, I'm wondering in general, like, what have you seen organizations struggle with the most as they, as they've had to move to creating and delivering probably much more online learning than they have in the past, maybe with an instructional designer, maybe not. Some of what I've seen would be polls for polls sake. I see this a lot. In fact, I remember getting some advice and and we don't do a lot of the virtual live. We tend to do more self-paced, but you know, people call me and at least three times in the first month or two, I literally said to people, I hereby free you from the obligation of using a poll. So it's like they had to like, oh, I, I need a poll question. No, you don't. If you have something worth polling, great. I was talking to someone who had to convert a ton of computer training. Uh, so how to use a computer system online. She'd do it very quickly. It was a huge initiative made more important by the pandemic because she was handling the call center in a retail. And so all of their business was moving to their internet call center. Hugely important. And she's like, but Diane, I don't have any polls. Like, I don't have any polls. Like, you don't need any polls. She was doing computer training. Their practice, their interaction was in the system setting up customers. Her program was highly interactive. And I did. If I had if I had a scepter, I would, you know, tap her on each shoulder. I hereby release you. So that's one of my pet peeves, polls for the sake of polls. Um, I think another big uh, problem people are having is they're just taking their same slides and putting them online. And let's be honest, most people have lousy slides. And in a classroom, in a physical classroom, the speaker is the primary visual. And yeah, I'd rather you have nice slides than bad slides, but a great instructor can carry a bad PowerPoint. You're online, you lose so much of that. You're in self-paced online, you lose so much more. And then the other thing that is, if you find yourself saying these words, I want you to rethink your life choices, okay? So you're doing a webinar, and one of the first things you say is, I want this to be interactive. If you want people to know that it will be interactive, interact. If they're not interacting, and I don't mean a poll that means nothing, if they're not interacting within the first six minutes, then you're setting the tone for them to sit back and be passive. And you're actually going to have more trouble getting them to be interactive. How do you make it, make them know? By doing it. So I think, I think there are a lot of strategies. And again, that's all virtual instructor led. But I think there are a lot of things people can do to make the experience better online. I mean, it's it's your brand. And if you're in a competitive marketplace, yeah, people put up with a lot of bad everything during the pandemic. I mean, we dealt with a lot. And as we emerge, people are going to decide who to stick with. And so I think really evaluating your quality is going to matter. And I don't just mean your production values. I mentioned our mission at Artisan is to help people know what to do. People will gravitate towards the solutions that solve their problems. And so if your one-hour webinar has 20 minutes of intro, that's not going to keep people. What problem of theirs are you solving? What decision are you going to help them make? What thing that they care about will they be better at tomorrow than they are today? If you're that person, 
it doesn't matter as much if your production values are smaller. Think about when you look at a YouTube video you to learn something. You care that you walked away knowing what to do, even if the person wasn't perfectly polished. So if you're looking to improve, I would focus there first. When it's interesting, as I'm listening to you, I'm sort of picturing myself as the learner on the other end, you know, and, and I've, I've been in those uh, situations where I've been subjected to multiple polls that didn't really seem to have to, anything to do with anything or, you know, being told that I need to interact when I haven't necessarily been given anything to interact with. I, I wonder what your sense is of kind of the, the average learner in all of this and you know, what they might be struggling with is they have to shift to doing more of their learning online. And and part of it, I'm sure, is just the experience itself, you know, like uh, we've just been talking about the quality of that experience. But in addition to to that, or maybe elaborate on that some more from the standpoint of the that average learner, what's the challenge of all this online now? I think a lot of it is uh, Zoom fatigue. It's real, where we're just sitting through, you know, sitting through so much of our day, for folks who are used to working in an office, you know, you get up, you go to a meeting, you go to the copier, you chat with somebody, you go over to talk to somebody. There's so much sitting. So I think we need to be be careful with your, if you're in a live environment, I love that people turn on their video cameras now more than they ever did before. I just taught a course on how to use Articulate Storyline, two of them. A two-day course on a Thursday, Friday, a two-day course on a Monday, Tuesday for different organizations. One of them had a platform where we could use video. One of them didn't. The one with the video was so much more engaging for everybody because everybody had their camera on. And we could, you know, you can see each other's reactions. The people got to know each other a little bit better. I think they were more likely to ask a question because of the connection. I'm not, these are not studies. This was just my experience doing a back-to-back. The other one felt so much more one way. So I love the fact that people are willing to put on their videos. But I also think if that's your style, make it okay for people to not turn on their video periodically. Because it, you know, I like I have a um, under my desk treadmill. Well, if I've got my camera on, I can't use it because, you know, I'm probably going to make people dizzy rocking back and forth walking on my treadmill. So if we make it okay, whether it's in the training or in meetings or whatever, to turn off the camera. I think that's helpful. But that's also one of the advantages of self-paced e-learning is I can I can move around. I can go take it on my couch. I can go sit out on my patio. I can do it while I've got my treadmill going. I can do it in more places at more times. I could take it on my iPad maybe. So I think there are some advantages to that self-paced e-learning. And your average learner, they won't necessarily know, oh, that person didn't use good instructional design to solve my problem, but they'll walk away going, that was worth my time or that wasn't. And people will go back to things that made their lives easier. And if it wasted their time, they're not going to go back. They're going to, you know, instead of going to you, they're going to go find it on YouTube instead. And you you talked quite a bit there about video, uh, you know, both using it live and, and people being able to see and interact with each other. But but even even what we're able to do in self-paced now, the quality of the video, the the deliverability of the video, I mean, that that to me feels like one of the bigger leaps forward in what's possible with, with e-learning. But I, I'm wondering, in addition to that, beyond that, if you 
look at the state of e-learning now versus where we were a decade ago and, you know, leaving COVID aside, just, you know, the, the evolution of it. I mean, where do you think we've really made significant progress in e-learning, you know, being a, a high quality, effective approach to addressing problems and opportunities that can be addressed with learning? And where is there just still a lot to be done to, to realize the potential? So I think in the past 10 years, the biggest change is that the tools are easier to use to develop it. And that's a blessing and a curse. It's made it more accessible to any number of organizations who, you know, you don't have to hire a programmer. And some of that dates back farther than 10 years, but the tools are easier to use. That's the blessing. The curse is that it puts the tools in hands of people who don't know how to use them. So I can give you PowerPoint. That doesn't mean you can make a good slide. Well, I can give you Storyline or Rise, Articulate Rise is extraordinarily easy to use. If you are even a remotely competent office worker, you can use Rise. But I've also seen it abused where people take what could have been a two-page PDF and break it up into all these little pieces and you have to click 47 times to get that two pages of information because they wanted to make it interactive. So I think we need to be careful about, like you said, the value of instructional design in the process. So I think technologically speaking, it's easier to use and it's also easier to consume. You know, people can use their tablets and their mobile devices, their phones. But that also presents challenges. How do you provide a great experience that works on a phone and a humongous monitor? And not all of the tools are good at that. Some are better at it than others. So in in many cases, you have to use really purposeful design. Those are some of the positives. I think some of the things we're still struggling with, it's a woman named Cami Bean who coined a term called clicky, clicky, bling, bling, where you're just, you know, putting in clicks or coolness just for coolness. I'm seeing that now happen with some AR. I'm seeing some really cool things happening in AR, and I'm seeing other people basically make a click to reveal or a multiple choice. And now I got to use this, you know, hold my phone up in the air and point it in different directions just to get a multiple choice quiz. So can it be used in a really effective, cool, strategic way? Yes. But can it also just be a lot of, you know, flash in the pan? Yeah. So again, it comes back to being uh, strategic. And obviously, there are there are plenty of mistakes that uh, organizations uh, can make when they're developing e-learning, and ones that they tend to make. We've talked to you about that before. Some of the common ones that organizations make in developing e-learning experiences. We'll definitely be sure to to link to our previous conversation with you in in the show notes. But what I'd really like to focus on here, though, is a specific area that seems to so often get overlooked. So I would put it in that kind of mistake. And that's accessibility. And I'm thinking of accessibility broadly. And I know you like to frame it really within the broader discussion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But can you you give us an overview, well, really of of how you think about it, how you do kind of frame accessibility, and and then what the issues tend to be with how organizations can address it in the best possible way? Sure. So as an instructional designer or an e-learning developer, I'm making design choices every day that in many cases will determine whether or not somebody has the chance to get better at their job. Is that my job? Is it my job to determine who gets to get better at their jobs? Because if I were to say who has the right to get better at their job, most people would say everybody. And yet, 
if I'm designing a slide and I don't give it adequate color contrast, I'm saying, yes, everybody has a right to get good at their jobs unless you can't distinguish between color or you have low contrast vision or you can't read fonts below nine points. So we are making decisions not realizing that we might be designing for people with our set of abilities. We're designing for people like us. And that's where so much of diversity, equity, inclusion runs into problems is when people assume that their experience is the norm and they make decisions based on their experience. And so if we want to be inclusive, if we want to be equitable, we need to ask ourselves, am I designing a course that is throwing up barriers to learning? And sometimes the obstacle is not knowing. I mean, I was in this field for a good 10 years before I ever even considered that that was an option, before I ever even came across. I mean, it didn't come to me on my own. I didn't just wake up one day and go, oh, my gosh, I'm excluding a huge portion of the of the world. No, somebody had to bring it to my attention 10 years in the industry. And you can still do that. You can come into this industry and just not be aware of it. So awareness is a huge issue. Another obstacle is the technology. It is not an easy thing to do. I can't just say, here's your six step checklist and you're done. Like you have to learn a lot. I wish it was easier. It's not, it doesn't have to be scary or intimidating, but it work. It's, it takes work to learn how to do it. Another obstacle is people's yeah, buts. Uh, yeah, I get that whole accessibility, but we don't work for the federal government. Yeah, I get accessibility, but we don't have anybody in our organization who has a disability. Yeah, but Um, Somebody with a disability couldn't do this job. And to those things, I say, well, ask Helen Keller. Like, ask Helen Keller what somebody can and can't accomplish in their job. That's not my place to say somebody can or can't do something. I have a friend who's visually impaired. She's legally blind. She uses a screen reader. She has a guide dog. She beat me in air hockey once. Now, granted, I'm terrible at air hockey, but still, because she could see a big red puck on a big white um, playing field. We can't assume to know what somebody can and can't do. And for the people who say nobody with a, a disability is in our organization or has this job, we don't know that. So many disabilities are what are called hidden disabilities. My coworker, Amy, knows of several people who worked very high-level management at Fortune 500 companies, one who was legally blind, one who wears hearing aids, and neither of them self-identified to their organizations. There's a stigma with self-identifying. So A, you don't know that. If you want to say nobody in an organization is, A, you don't know that. B, why not? You know, if we really want to ask the questions, What organizational obstacles are in place that are keeping you from having anybody with a disability in your organization? And thirdly, for how long? You know, I was I was talking with someone in a disability group in a a large organization the other day, and they said all ability is temporary. Like that hit me really hard. And so we need to remember that ability is a spectrum. It doesn't just mean fully blind or fully deaf. And it, it sometimes it's temporary. You know, I might not be able to use a mouse because I just had carpal tunnel syndrome. That's a temporary disability. Maybe I can use a mouse, but I'm not super precise with it. So 
making those buttons so small and so close together, and then I clicked the wrong one, and you auto-graded it. Like the minute I clicked, it got graded. There was no submit button. I didn't have a chance. I got it wrong just because I'm not precise with my mouse. Or there was a time limit. And so I work more slowly with a mouse, and that time limit kept me from being successful. Or even just auto-advancing to the next slide. That means you're telling me how long it will take me to process this information. So there's so many ways that we can throw barriers in people's way without realizing it. And so if we want to take advantage of this groundswell of support around DE&I, we need to make sure that ability is part of the conversation. And I've actually stopped using the word accessibility because I think it has a lot of baggage. People have preconceived notions. It either applies to me or it doesn't. Mm. So we need to insinuate ourselves in the or- our organizations, our clients, I mean, whoever it is, our clients' conversations, our internal conversations about DE&I, and usually it's around race, it's around age, it's around gender identity, national origin, all of those are great things to do, but ability is often not part of that conversation. And so I know a lot of people who are trying to use more representative images from a race perspective or a gender perspective, but what about ability? Is that the terminology you use at this point? You, just, you refer to it as, as ability rather than you know, disability or accessibility. You're just talking about addressing ability when you're creating. All forms of ability. And then the other term I use a lot is access. Accessibility, which is a very similar word, has baggage. I'll be really honest. It has baggage. So if I ask a question of a client, oh, you know, how important it is that this is accessible to individuals with disabilities, it brings up their preset answers. But if I say instead, let's talk about equal access to this content. Let's talk about how we can make sure everyone has access to this professional development opportunity. They enter that conversation very differently. So I've started talking about access and equal access. And I think it opens up people's minds. And so if you're a a training business, you can do it because it's a competitive advantage and do it because it's the right thing to do. Accessibility is having its day. I have been asked to speak on accessibility more in the last six months than I have in the last five years. And so you're either becoming part of the conversation or you're going to be left behind because it's happening. I do feel like I hear and see much more about it now. You know, back in our pre-leading learning, pre-Tagoras days, we actually had a learning management system company. And and we, we attempted at the time and, and did the best we could around accessibility issues with learning management systems. In fact, we worked with a great organization, Nobility, that uh, was run, may still be run by um, Sharon Rush. She was just a great leader thinker in terms of technology and ability, accessibility, and really helping to spearhead that effort. But then I feel like once we got out of that and started looking at learning management systems over the years as we're helping organizations select them and implement them, that it just did not feel like that focus had caught on. But I feel like we are seeing it now. We, we are getting more technology companies that are that are tuned into to Section 508, that are tuned into, I never know the right way to say it, uh, WCAG or... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I call it. Yeah, there's different. Yeah, but um, but those sorts of standards, but it still feels like it has you know quite a ways to go. We did do a uh, in collaboration with um, Nick Steenhow to. consults on uh, accessibility and and technology issues. We did a a video on LMS uh, accessibility as a prelude to our live review event that we do every year with LMS demonstrations. And that's been great to have out there as a resource. But yeah, I think you said, like you put it, the conversation is growing. It feels like it's getting a lot more attention. I'm looking forward to getting a lot more attention um, than it has, and particularly to the platform providers really being tuned into it and it just being almost something you don't even have to ask about anymore. It's just going to be there. Uh, yeah. And that's part of what we want. Very, very often e-learning is, is like the little brother running behind the cool kids. Like if you've ever seen the movie Christmas Story, Ralphie is going to school and his little brother is running way behind, wait, 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 wait for me. E-learning is often that way to the rest of the web world. We were years behind in terms of mobile design and then responsive design and and I think we're running behind the rest of the world in accessibility. And the, the tools are making some improvements. They're better than they used to be. I know a lot of the major tool providers have shown a really big commitment to it over the last few years. And so it's it's getting better. But I don't think we're running where we need to be yet. Yeah, that, that is true about the rest of the world, too. I feel like one of the sources of positive influence that I'm seeing are Canadian-based technology companies where they, they do have better national standards around the issue than uh, at least better adherence or regulation of those standards, I think, than, than happens in the United States. The other thing that's happening that is shifting the conversation is so that from the DEI perspective is more that it's the right thing to do. But then there's also the it's the law. And the only formal law we have is the Section 508, which only applies to federal government communication. Many states have their own laws, but that also applies only to state communication. However, case law is starting to change that. Case law is starting to say, oh, no, 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 if if you have to be physically accessible, you have to be electronically accessible. So there was case law around um, Domino's Pizza. There's no law that says their their app or website needs to be accessible. No law says that. But Americans with Disabilities, it's being considered discriminatory. It says if your physical location is required to be accessible to someone, why wouldn't your website be? And so where there is no law, there's starting to be case law. And so... You know, whether you want to do it because it's the right thing to do or because it's the law, there are more and more lawsuits coming out now for organizations' websites. And let me just be really clear that I'm a hypocrite right now. My website is not WCAG compliant. I am working on it. Progress over perfection. But there are organizations that are using automated systems to scan websites and find flaws and then send letters from lawyers. So there's any number of reasons. And, you know, if you're a small business, especially, you know, one lawsuit can wreak major, major havoc. And if you're a big organization, you know, not just the financial, but the reputational risk, because you don't want to be that Domino's case study in the news. Clearly, things are always evolving in a technology-driven field like e-learning, you know, and even our understanding of learning uh, itself with or without an E has, has been evolving rapidly in, in recent years. I'd be interested to know, how do you keep up? And, you know, what are, what are some of your go-to sources and, and resources that you'd be open to, to sharing with listeners? So, some of the 
ways I stay up to date would be, for me, the three main organizations to follow would be ATD, Association for Talent Development, the Learning Guild. They used to be called the E-Learning Guild, but they dropped the E, and then Training Magazine. So all three of those organizations have blogs, conferences, newsletters, magazines, free webinars, paid webinars, like so much information. Even if you just focus on the free stuff, so much to learn. And then if you want to, you know, go deeper and invest in a conference or something. So those those are my go-tos. I get emails from them every day. I don't read them every day, but at least skim them to see, you know, what's going on. And then I think my other biggest source is LinkedIn. So you connect to, you know, some of the right people and they're just constantly posting articles. And then what you start liking, you start seeing more of, and then you connect to other people. And my feed is full of accessibility stuff right now. And partially because I think there is a groundswell, but partially because I started liking people's posts and commenting on people's accessibility posts and posting my own accessibility posts. So then that draws more people who talk about accessibility. So now there's more accessibility in my feed. So if you want to learn more about a specific subject, just find, you know, just go into LinkedIn and do hashtag accessibility and you'll see all kinds of things. And, you know, it's just going to start shaping your feed to show the types of things you're interested. But there's so many people out there just giving great links to great articles. And that's where I find a lot of the stuff that I care about. Accessibility is obviously an area that you're tracking a great deal. What are some other areas? What are some of the the trends that have you most excited right now? So accessibility, yes, is definitely a big trend that I'm interested in. I've been keeping my eye on AR and VR for quite a while. We at Artisan have never quite taken the plunge. We're very market-driven, like many of you listening here, and we haven't had a lot of requests for it. So we haven't really done much in terms of diving in. But it's something I've been watching, and we are actively looking for the right business case for it to to really do something where the technology is an improvement. Like I went to a conference years ago, and it was VR, so you got to wear the headset, and it was around a like a physical plant type thing. Like I don't remember exactly, was it air conditioning systems or you know something like that? And they, it was a virtual reality, a space that's actually very difficult to get to, and it'll be hard to take a bunch of people there. And so you get to look around, and certain places you could focus on a button and it pops up with more information. And I get the you can't be there part, but I'm wearing this thing on my head for what could have been accomplished with a few photographs, because it was a click to reveal. Like... Don't make me put that thing on my head for click to reveal. But I've also seen some that are really cool. I just saw something so cool down at the universe, uh, down at Training Magazine's conference was um, recently in Orlando, and David Metcalf from the University of Central Florida was showing this. I think it would be considered mixed reality. You didn't have to wear a headset, which is always a bonus for me. I don't like them, and it was a COVID simulator. And you might have seen a, a COVID simulation where somebody coughs and you see a simulation of their particles going wherever. Well, here, instead, you put up your phone and it shows your office because you're looking through your camera at your office or your space. And this imaginary person walks through and coughs and you see stuff going on your desk. Oh, wow. <laughs> like that 
has real advantage. Like that would be so much more impactful to see how my office is set up as opposed to put this on my thing, put this on my head and I get a click to reveal. Like that's where the technology is really making a difference in how people are perceiving that content. So that's what excites me is not the coolness of the technology, but where it's used in a really smart way where another technology, a simpler technology, wouldn't get you as far. Because that stuff's expensive. I know it's getting easier. Everything's getting easier. That stuff's still expensive. So I want to make sure that that people are getting something for that extra investment and for that potential extra usability. You know, and I, you know, if I have to download an app or something, there's some extra steps I have to take. Make it worth my while. Yeah, I feel like with um, with virtual reality and augmented reality, we're at a point that maybe is similar to kind of like the the mid. 90s or so with video because when when I first got into to e-learning you know we were trying to do video but it was expensive it was hard there were just a lot of you know technical difficulties around it and I think it wasn't until it became really easy and that you could experiment with it and screw up and use your imagination and it didn't didn't like you said like right now VR and AR are expensive you're not going to you're not going to play around a whole lot with them if you're trying to, to develop something. We need to get to that point where you can play around with them and make all sorts of mistakes and try out things that turn out to be stupid, but ultimately find the things that, that, that yes, really do add uh, a lot of value. Hopefully, that's not the VR version of TikTok, but you know, who knows uh, <laughs> where we'll get to with it. But well, Diane, it, it's always such a pleasure uh, talking with you. You're, you're just always so smart in how you think about and, and go about uh, online learning. And I think that always comes through in, in conversations. Diane Elkins is co-founder of Artisan eLearning and eLearning Uncovered. And as you just heard, someone who's incredibly thoughtful about what goes into creating good, equitable, and impactful learning. You'll find links to learn more about artisan e-learning and e-learning uncovered in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 304. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 304, you'll also find a link to Diane on LinkedIn, where you can connect with her personally and see some of the great resources and ideas she shares there. In the show notes, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast We'd be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you'd rate us on Apple Podcasts, especially if you find the Leading Learning Podcast valuable. Salise and I personally appreciate it, and those reviews and ratings help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a rating. Lastly, please spread the word about leading learning. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 304, there are links to find Leading Learning on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <laughs>